You philosophers are lucky men. You write on paper, and paper is patient. Unfortunately, empress that I am, I write on the susceptible skins of living beings. Empress Catherine II. Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 188, Catherine the Great and Peter III, a reassessment. Last time, we covered the end of the Russian Civil War, one of the greatest human-caused catastrophes of all time. Today, I'm going to do a reassessment of Peter III and his wife, Catherine II, also known as Catherine the Great. When I first covered Catherine, I went over her life from the time she was known as Princess Sophia Friedrike August von Anhalt Zerbst Dornberg, or as her father liked to call her, fiction, all the way to her death at the age of 67 as the longest ruling female in Russian history. Her reign has been oft times glamorized, but not criticized nearly enough, as I'm going to do in this podcast. Mind you, I'm not going to diminish all of her achievements and there are many. Instead, I want to use the 2020 hindsight that history allows us to point out things that she put into place that was to harm the autocracy and Russia through the era of the Soviet Union and even up to today. With the criticisms come heaps of praise for what she did for her adopted country. Many consider her reign the zenith of Russian culture and prestige. As for Peter, all I gave him in March of 2011 was a mere slapshot review, which I felt at the time was just about what he deserved. Peter was almost universally disliked by those in the court of the Tsar. Though, I have to admit, his reign and his life history may have been put into a more negative light by his wife Catherine to make him look worse than he really was and to justify his death and overthrow. But as they say, to the victor goes the spoils, and in her case, by deposing her husband, she became the victor. Peter III was born, Karl Peter Ulrich, on February 21, 1728, to Charles Frederick, Duke of Holstein Gottorp, a nephew of Charles XII of Sweden, and his mother was Anna Petrovna, a daughter of Tsar Peter the Great and Empress Catherine I of Russia. Anna passed away three months after the birth of her son, with his father dying in 1739, which made him the Duke of Holstein-Gottorp when he was a mere 11 years of age. When his mother Anna's younger sister Elizabeth became Empress of Russia, young Karl was summoned to her court and made the heir presumptive. Early on, Elizabeth went looking for a suitable wife for the Tsar-to-be and came up with a young woman. Sophia Augusta Frederica, his second cousin, to be his mate. Much of what we know about the marriage comes from the diaries and letters from Sophia, the future Catherine the Great. From what we gather, she loathed him, more so as the years went on. Her writings and those of her future court were very critical of his personality and behavior, while others, especially recent historians, have viewed him as a cultured and sophisticated young man. Whatever the case, history holds a dim view of his reign, especially when he pulled Russia out of the Seven Years' War, effectively saving his idol, Frederick II of Prussia, from certain defeat and death. This reversal of position 
held by the previous empress, Elizabeth, made many in the court dislike the young Tsar and helped further the plot against him by friends and lovers of his wife, Catherine. Still, in his brief 186-day reign, Peter III signed 220 new laws, many of which were very progressive and Western European in nature. Had he been able to continue this trend, Russia might have become more powerful and enlightened than what was to come in his stead. He began to deal with the serf issue by making it illegal to kill one serf without some punishment by law. He also proclaimed religious freedom, something that was unheard of in Europe at the time. He abolished the secret police, which was founded by his grandfather, Peter the Great. Of course, this was to be overturned by his wife and has remained an important, if not negative, institution to this day. Peter III established the first state bank in Russia, rejected the nobility's monopoly on trade, and encouraged mercantilism by increasing grain exports and forbidding the import of sugar and other materials that could be found in Russia. For all of the faults that were attributed to Peter, mostly by Catherine, to justify his his overthrow and his murder, he might have turned out to be a pretty darn good czar in the long run. That, of course, is pure conjecture, and maybe something I'm going to consider somewhere in the future. Hint, hint. But since this is a historical review of the reign of these two monarchs, we must stay true to the facts and know that on July 8, 1762, Catherine II was declared Empress of all Russia. Since I already covered her life in episodes 42 through 51 today, I will review her 10 most significant accomplishments with some commentary of their value or disservice to the future of Russia, all the way to today. Number one, she was the longest reigning female ruler of Russia, as I said, starting on July 8, 1762, all the way to her death on November 11, 1796, a reign of 34 years. Not only was she the longest serving female, she was to be its last. Because of her son Paul's disdain for his mother, he passed a law to forbid a female to hold the position of czar unless extreme circumstances occurred. Number two, her lead in the successful wars between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. The biggest was the Russo-Turkish War of 1768 to 1774. Because of the victories, Russia gained a firm foothold on the Black Sea for their fleet, as well as gaining Azov, Kirsch, and Kinburn. They also became the protectorate of Crimea, which would effectively end the centuries of raids into Russia by the Crimean Tatars, remnants of the Mongol horde. The Treaty of Kukuk, Kainarka, ended the most devastating defeat of the Ottomans of all of the nine wars between the two nations. Of course, this is a major victory and important for the future of Russia. This helped protect her southern border for the foreseeable future. Number three. Partially due to the aforementioned war, Russia became the power in southeastern Europe, especially after the Russo-Turkish War of 1787 to 1792, culminating with the Treaty of Jassy. Again, another strengthening of her southern borders. 
But it did make her more of a threat to the rest of Europe, especially the British with their ever-expanding empire. Number four, Catherine was at the helm of a massive expansion of the Russian Empire. Her adopted country expanded by some 200,000 square miles or 518,000 square kilometers. Russia was now finally seen as a European power, something that Peter the Great had begun. As I mentioned before, this would make the rest of the European countries scared of the Russian bear, which of course would lead to the disastrous Crimean War of 1854-56. Number five, educational reform. This is one of her major triumphs, but not without some warts. On August 5th, 1786, the quote, Russian Statute of National Education was put into effect. Free education for all, free classes of society was implemented with the creation of high schools and primary schools. Over 62,000 pupils in 549 state schools were in attendance by the end of her reign. The wart was the lack of any such education for the majority of Russians, namely the serfs. As enlightened as she supposedly was, she was still not ready to help those most in need. They were still viewed as lesser people than the rest of the Russian population. Number six, Catherine was a champion of women's and children's rights, and nothing could have said that better than her establishment of the, former of the formal education of females, as well as creating foundling hospitals, boarding schools for abandoned children and orphans. In 1764, she established the Smolny Institute in St. Petersburg, which was not only the first government-funded educational institute for women in Russia, but in all of Europe. This is, in my opinion, one of her greatest accomplishments. Number seven, administrative reforms. Here is where I split from the majority of historians. While many tout the changes, like the statute for the administration of the provinces of the Russian Empire in 1775, I view it as the basis of the bureaucracies and corruption that plagued Tsarist Russia, the communist USSR, and today's modern Russia. While this existed before Catherine, it was now strictly codified, which allowed unscrupulous men to know where the boundaries were and where they could profit within the system, with the cost borne out by the people they were supposed to be serving. During her reign, the number of government officials more than doubled. Because of this massive decentralization, corrupt officials could reap major financial gains. Rooting out this type of corruption, corruption is almost impossible, but it also makes the people more disapproving of their government, something that fed the dissatisfaction of the Russian people prior to the revolution of 1917. Of course, the improvements caused by this reform allowed for better governance of the vast Russian empire. The size of the country almost demanded that this took place. Thinking back, a smaller Russia may have made it a lot stronger, but that's another story for a different day. In the short run, the administrative reforms were an impressive improvement to the existing system at the time. In the long run, I feel that it hampered Russia's ability to efficiently extract its natural resources and share its wealth with the majority of its people. Number eight, 
the expansion of trade and communications. During Catherine's reign, Russia introduced the first paper money in its history. The Code of Commercial Navigation and the Salt Trade Code of 1781 helped increase the size and wealth of the middle class. Add to that the Charter of the Towns, which limited the power of the nobles, the middle class greatly benefited under the Empress's leadership. Of course, once again, the serf was the one to bear the brunt of these reforms. Number nine, the establishment of the Free Economic Society. This was a group led by Grigory Orlov, whose ideal was, quote, to publicize advanced methods of farming and estate management as practiced in foreign countries. It was the first organization of its kind not to rely on the government for support, but Catherine was still behind it all the way. It was also the first time that liberal thinking was encouraged. Again, in the short term, it was highly beneficial, but for the Romanovs and their dynasty, it would sow the seeds of discontent, especially when the reactionary Tsars Nicholas I and Alexander III tried to rein in this type of thought. Number 10, Russian Enlightenment and the Arts. Philosophy, theater, music, and the sciences. The reign of Catherine the Great was a type of renaissance for Russia, also known as the Russian Enlightenment. For the first time, the arts became an important part of culture outside of religion. Her support was to lay the groundwork for all of the great artists of the coming generations, like Pushkin, Tolstoy, Tchaikovsky, and many, many others. We can look at the Hermitage and see her fingerprint on Russian culture. This museum was based on Catherine's personal art collection and is now a world treasure of incalculable value. The Bolshoi Theater and the Mali Theater were in part created due to her influence. One can honestly say that her presence on Russian culture and her influence was truly immense. There were peoples outside of Russia who would not look kindly on the Empress's reign especially the Poles and the Turks, as she took large swaths of their territory as though it was due her and the Russians. And one cannot forget the Pugachev Rebellion. Uh, you know, it's something that was a stain on her reign and one that caused her to really look back and wondering if this liberalism was okay or, you know, at all. In my opinion, Catherine II deserves the sobriquet, the great, as much as anyone in history. The problem is that we have to really look back at her time as the ruler of the Russian Empire and use a little bit of critical thinking. While the nobles and the middle class did fabulously, the lowly serf had more weight put on their shoulders, taxation, and just general feelings of inadequacy for these people. They were considered almost non-people, slaves like the American slaves were. You know, the Pugachev example was an example of the feeling of the peasant class and was an enormous rebellion, as I has recounted in one of the episodes. So this was something that Catherine and people who admire Catherine the Great have to look at. Well, anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as I look at the reigns of Elizabeth, Ivan VI, Anna, Peter II, and Catherine I. 
Now, every once in a while, I ask for donations to the podcast, and today's one of them. And you can do that by visiting my blog site at RussianRulersHistory.com. Would appreciate any and all donations, and thank you to all of you who have donated in the past. So now, as always, Das Vidanya и спасибо большое.